The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today, on the lab report, Dr. Datis Karazian. Research scientist, academic professor, functional medicine doctor. Martial artist. What? Oh yeah, just listen. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. I don't know where to go with that. Hmm. <laughs> Me neither, obviously. Hello! Hi, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How goes it? It's going great. Thank on you. On a morning. It is the morning. On a random morning. Welcome to the Lab Report on a random morning. Welcome, everyone, to the Lab Report. This is a Genova podcast where we talk about functional medicine, specialty lab testing, and integrative therapeutics. And I hope you enjoy this. If you're enjoying this, what do they do, Patty? Well, if we're meeting you for the first time oh, and hello. connecting with you for the first time, Hi. and you like this podcast, you should go to iTunes or Spotify and you should subscribe and rate and review and leave us some feedback there. Hit the subscribe button. That'll help us out. That'll help all of the podcast collaboration. That's right. Uh, and um, you can also send feedback to podcast at gdx.net. If you have a question that you'd like to submit for question of the day, or you just like to let us know how you're doing, yeah, yeah. email podcast at gdx.net. We have a pretty fun episode today. It's going to be jammed with tons of information. It's so jammed with information that we don't even have time to do our normal shenanigans. <laughs> Dr. Datis Karazian is here. Chappers, what are we talking about today? Oliver, you were late. You were late, Oliver. You missed it. <laughs> anyway, we're talking to Datis. That's right. And I can't wait to talk to Datis. He is, um, man, that guy. Like, he's got so many specialties, right? Like, neurology. Yes. Like, thyroid disease. Mitochondrial dysfunction. Like, there's so many places to go with him. degenerative issues. Yeah. And um, Let's ask him all of this stuff. <laughs> I've got a lot of questions. <laughs> we'll see how long we go today, right? Let's do it. Okay. Patty. What? Today we have Dr. Datis Karazian on. Oh, I know. Dr. Datis Karazian is a clinical research scientist, academic professor, and a functional medicine healthcare provider. He's an associate clinical professor at Loma Linda University School of Medicine and a research fellow at Harvard Medical School and a researcher at the Department of Neurology at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Karazian earned a PhD degree in health sciences with concentrations in immunology and toxicology and a doctor of health science degree from Nova Southeastern University. He completed his postdoctoral research training at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Karazian earned a master's of science degree in human nutrition from the University of Bridgeport, a doctor of chiropractic degree from Southern California University of Health Sciences, and a master of medical sciences degree in clinical investigation from Harvard Medical Whoa. School. So with that... Welcome to the lab report, Datis. Welcome, Dr. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great, great, what... great. Well, Datis, those are some pretty impressive scholastic credentials right there. And equally as impressive is your teaching experience. And Michael and I have both heard you lecture at IFM conferences. And in fact, we cyberstalk your Facebook page and listen to you lecture every week on Facebook. And I think a good place to start is what has continually fueled your passion for functional medicine? Well, I had a 
I grew up with a very sick family member that had a chronic disease and I just saw how they went through the healthcare system. And then um, they actually were helped by a chiropractor that did, that did functional medicine or nutrition at that point. It wasn't really called functional medicine, but it was the same philosophy, mm-hmm. trying to figure out um, physiological pathways and try to support them. And it made a big difference in her, uh, this person's life. And I go, wow, that is really cool. Right. And uh, so I decided, well, that must be what you do. I went, I went to chiropractic <laughs> school thinking that's what chiropractic was mostly. Right. And I knew they did manipulation and so forth, but um, I was really more into it for um, the functional medicine side of things. And uh, that then got me interested in, in uh, do, reading blood chemistry analysis. And there was a guy that was teaching blood chemistry seminars at the time who then retired and uh, he got he got me into understanding how to really do a good CBC evaluation and how to read blood work. Mm-hmm. And while I was in school, my brother had graduated. He was a, he was also a chiropractor, but he had a license he never used because he decided once he graduated it wasn't for him. So I was using his license number to order tests all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I was evaluating all my classmates and was getting mentored. So right away, I knew one of the essential skills I had to learn was how to do really a good. Um, blood chemistry analysis and really look at labs and how to figure things out because that made a big difference in personal family member. And I can see as I was learning that, that I could really figure out a lot of things with chronic patients once I learned how to read lab work. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, at that point, um, Great Smokies, which is now Genova, right. <laughs> was, uh, putting together classes and things. And I was attending some of those and going, okay, this is really great. And the functional medicine movement whole started. And I go, okay, this is really very efficient, effective way to evaluate chronic disease. Yeah. And uh, once I got into that, I really realized I don't understand research. And I, and I can pretend I understand research, but I don't. Mm-hmm. So that's what then got me focused on trying to go through uh, a research track and uh, and then I, once I went through my, I went through a doctor of health science and I went through a PhD and PhD one on the work in an immunology lab. So I was privileged to work with Risto Johnny's lab. Mm, yeah. And uh, um, we did some research on how bioretardants bind to albumin, become neoantigens and then turn on neurological autoimmunity. And that was my PhD thesis. Mm. And then while I was there, I got the opportunity to do my postdoc at, at uh, Transcend Laboratory with uh, Martha Herbert at Harvard Medical School. And then I realized, okay, I understand somewhat how to do research, but I don't understand data analysis and statistics. Wow. And that's was very lucky to um, be able to enroll and take the Master of Medical Science and Clinical Investigation at Harvard Medical School, which was all about uh, basically data and stats. And that really helped me understand research and how to conduct uh, proper uh, evaluation and study designs and and. Uh, and all of that is just so I can understand, interpret research better, just improve my clinical models and, you know, try to figure out how to manage chronic patients. Wow. Wow. Well, in your time at Harvard Medical, how open were they to, you know, alternative medicine or functional medicine? Um, well, so there's two different groups in Harvard Medical School. There's the Harvard Medical Students, mm-hmm. which is the medical education, mm-hmm. which I was not involved with. I was involved with the research department at Harvard yeah. Medical School. Yeah. So there are two different communities. So I can only comment on the research community. Yeah. And the research community was extremely open. They did not care what you hmm. were doing, what you investigated, as long as you had good uh, science behind it. Wow. So um, 
in this program I was in, it was a master medical science and clinical investigation. It's the oldest master's program at Harvard Medical School, and they have only 12 openings a year. Wow. And um, the oldest, and when I met with the dean who was in the program, he's like, the reason you guys are here is because we think you guys are disruptors in healthcare. Wow. So that's why, that's why I got it. Well, and I get, it makes sense. I mean, you know, they're leading in research, so it makes sense that they'd be open to new ideas, right? Yeah. But you, you also think that, you know, Harvard, it might be, wow, this is a really kind of staunch uh, sort of organization, but you know, but the research medicine doctor coming in. Yeah. Yeah. So they wanted, they wanted completely different perspectives. Everyone in our class came in from completely different backgrounds. And they said the biggest breakthroughs have always been by diversity, having people from other fields look at what they're doing. Yeah. And their effort as a school was trying to give prop, give good um, education, proper education to people who were really interested in doing research mm-hmm. in new fields. So that's how I, I was lucky to get into that yeah. uh, program. And uh, they were completely open. Um, and even within Harvard Medical School, um, there's the Osher Clinic that is a preventive medicine, alternative medicine um, school right at the Brigham, mm-hmm. which is one of the hospitals for Harvard, mm-hmm. and uh, the School of Public Health. They're, they have a phenomenal uh, cafeteria with healthy foods and everyone there is into nutrition and they have an entire department of how toxic chemicals and homes and workplaces make people sick. And they're doing, mm. um, there's, I mean, a lot of functional medicine research, but not as being great. Fasano's there doing all the, uh, right, 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 major right. league gut research at Mass General. Right. So, right. Uh, you know, there's 12 different research hospitals. They're all doing their own thing, but, uh, it was very open-minded. It was very into nutrition, lifestyle. Um, and most of the um, professors there were very into um, preventive medicine and nutrition and lifestyle medicine for themselves. So it, was, it wasn't it was a stuck up, you know. Yeah. yeah. It was very open and they were, they just wanted to make sure that you, when you do research, you do it properly. That's right. promising. That's, that's great. It's really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. And you definitely want to get into some of the conversation about your focus in immunology and toxicology, but also among your clinical specialties, you've lectured on evaluation and management of mitochondrial dysfunction as another root cause um, yeah. where you wrote the book, Why Isn't My Brain Working? Like, what are yeah. some signs and symptoms that you associate with mitochondrial dysfunction and, and maybe overall cognitive health? Sure. So when you look at, you know, mitochondrial function, the ultimate goal of mitochondria is to produce ATP. And when you look at different cells in the body, as you get different types of mitochondrial compromise, um, one of the tissues that's least forgiving is the brain, because the brain uh, neurons don't really have any significant degree of um, cell division changes once they're developed. And you really kind of, you really get the total neuronal pool you have when you're first born, and then you kind of lose neurons over time. So when neurons start to die off, uh, it's pretty significant mm-hmm. to say compared to our, like our liver cells or kidney cells where cells die off and they regenerate. We don't really have this uh, you know, further cell division process in the brain. So when neurons die, the only chance you have is to have plasticity for neurons that are still left connecting to each other so you can maintain function. Right. So, you know, that, all, that, all that being said, one of your best windows to see mitochondrial comprom- compromise is to just look at the brain because since these cells don't go through further cell division anymore. And since chronic mitochondrial compromise promotes every neurodegenerative disease and just mm-hmm. neuro- neurological function, um, I think uh, a very good uh, window into looking at mitochondrial health in a clinical exam or a clinical workup is a patient's brain. Mm. So, you know, just from the minute they, so at the very end of the day, when you're looking at a patient walking into your office, um, from the are they on time? 
why are they not on time? Could they not find directions? Did someone have to drive them? Those are all clues of what's going on with their brain function. How's their speech? Do they remember their paperwork? They forgot to fill out a form. How long does it take them to fill out a form? If it takes them forever to fill out a form that's telling you that some part of their cognitive interpretive areas of a prefrontal cortex, for example, aren't working, right? Or the memory recall centers, hippocampus areas are not working. So um, right away, uh, the initial presentation is, is a big clue uh, into a window of the brain, and the brain is a really good window into the integrity of mitochondria and the whole system. Mm-hmm. Now, um, sometimes it comes to the chief complaint, it's like fatigue, and the fatigue really just may be brain-based, that you know, when you get deeper into their history, they tell you they, they're okay on weekends, but they really have a hard time during the week. And then you find out they're in front of a computer all day, and then the brain crashes. Mm-hmm. They're not in front of a computer, it doesn't have any issues, but they have to drive to work and being in traffic back and forth really fatigues the brain, but they haven't made that association yet. So really what you're looking at is a person who has uh, really poor brain joints. So when you look at all neurodegenerative diseases and when you look at uh, overall physiological function of mitochondria, one of the earliest clinical findings of this system being dysfunctional is in the brain, but even more specific, brain endurance. So um, cognitive endurance. So for some people, like they can't read books anymore. Mm. <laughs> they can go through a few few pages uh, before they get really really tired. For some people, um, they can't drive for long periods of time. So you know, even for yourself as a healthcare professional, how is your brain endurance? Like, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you what do you notice? Can you handle things like you used to? Can you read stacks of research papers like you used to, or can you not? And if you can't, those are letting it. That's that's letting you know that you probably have some neurodegenerative and mitochondrial changes happening and that's where it first starts right mm, yeah. so brain fatigue brain endurance is, is a big big issue right um, and i think that's the first window into really looking at there could be some mitochondrial problems and when it comes to those mitochondrial problems that are underlying some of the the dysfunction uh, from a functional neurology perspective, what what is the etiology of that? Do you think that's free radical damage? Do you think it, are there multiple etiologies that play into that? What are, what are some of the big ones? Yeah, so basically, uh, mitochondria, neuron mitochondria specifically, they need three things: they need a steady supply of glucose. Um, well, they well, say four things: they need steady supply of glucose. They need a steady supply of oxygen. They have to have um, activation, activation with neurons develops a proteomic response where they get protein transcription to actually make mitochondria Mm. or mitochondrial biogenesis. And then they also need to have decreased oxidative stress, right? So Mm -hmm. inflammation. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, let's say we do identify a person that has significant brain endurance issues and brain impairment issues, which is a clue to us that, that the mitochondria is impaired and they're headed towards a neurodegenerative pathway. Um, then we go back and go, do they have, for example, a blood sugar disorder? Do they have oxygen issues, which clinically would be things like, do they have any patterns of anemia, mm-hmm. um, issues with circulation? Um, and then we can get into uh, things of, and then you get into oxidative stress and oxidative stressors where environmental factors, yeah. dietary protein factors, anything that causes inflammation can be a factor. Right. And then most and the last one is, are they actually activating those areas of the brain? To, to develop plasticity and to support mitochondrial biogenesis. So, um, you know, and then I guess you go deeper in your history and then try to figure out each one of those things and, and go for it. But, um, you know, a lot of times, even just like a, a person that comes in that has been chronically hypoglycemic forever, like they just forget to eat, they get shaky, lightheaded, mm-hmm. they have really low blood pressure, 
we see that all the time, right? Yeah. Low blood mm-hmm. pressure, low blood sugar. Their, their, their low blood pressure is going to impact their perfusion, so they're not going to get as much blood flow to the brain. So mm-hmm. they're more prone to getting uh, states of hypoxia in the brain. And their low blood sugar is going to impact those pathways. And uh, over a period of time, just those two factors alone, forget the oxidative stress and inflammation, yeah. those two factors alone are going to promote a unhealthy brain. So it's, I think it's important to just kind of step behind it. I mean, I think the model of just uh, going, you have neurodegeneration, you need to load up on, on mitochondrial nutrients is um, it's, it's more preventative than it is effective Interesting. in an actual acute chronic disease. Right? Yeah. Got so it. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Taking those types of nutrients are great for like some degree of health, but once they get to the point they're in trouble, um, you know, most patients that are in trouble like that, they already come in with, bags and bags full of supplements of taking everything, right? So right, right. They, they cook you 10, they're taking everything. And then at that point you go like, Hey, we have to get your blood sugar stable and we got to get your blood pressure up. Like that's first. Yeah. And then we got to like, yeah. other like getting to that root cause in essence. Right. Right. So that's, I think that's how uh, I've been implementing my understanding of mitochondria. And the other key thing with mitochondria, especially when it comes to brain is you have to initiate mitochondrial biogenesis. Yeah. And that means the development of new mitochondrial pools. Right. Development of mitochondrial biogenesis can only happen with activation. It can't happen with a nutraceutical or supplement. Mm-hmm. There's some studies where they show different gene expressions turn on with different nutraceuticals, but they're not actually showing development of mitochondria. So various nutraceuticals like flavonoids, for example, they can turn off different uh, uh, gene expressions to help build mitochondria, but they don't actually do it. Yeah. Um, hmm. to create the environment for it to be to, to, to take place more efficiently but actually activating it is the same thing just like if you have weak biceps you can't take any supplement to make it grow sure. right, uh, right. same thing brain. so you have to activate the brain to really make those neurons develop and when you're actually making neurons develop you're actually developing mitochondria so when people really you know when really people have poor brain function um finding out what areas of their brain aren't working and then activating and doing things is is actually promoting mitochondrial biogenesis if you do that in combination with physiological clinical factors that impact glucose and oxygen, then you're, then you're there. And then you then have to find out all the things that are causing the oxidative stress, which is this whole other list of list of patterns. Right. Right. But that that's, and that's where testing, for example, becomes very useful. Um, uh, it's because you can't get those from history. Yeah. So from, from a physical exam history, you can get the window of like, Hey, this, this person's mitochondria is not working. And then you get some ideas of glucose and oxygen from the history and exam, but you, you know, you need to do lab testing to see if they're anemic or they have any kind of environmental exposures or, you know, what's the, what are things that are causing inflammation, whether it's a gut brain access issue or it's a biotransformation issue. That's where the whole game of functional medicine really comes in yeah. into the, to the play. Yeah. And I've heard you describe as part of that evaluation, this idea of a functional neurological exam to try and yep. pinpoint the actual areas that, that might be uh, problematic. Can you speak you know, a little bit about what that entails? Sure. And in, in, the, in the field of neurology, they, they just typically refer to these as soft signs versus hard signs. Hmm. Soft signs would be like they have an abnormal deep head and reflex and that's kind of it, but nothing else is abnormal. They have like increased tone in one arm, but it's not really spastic like a stroke pattern yet. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a little bit of abnormal um, withdrawal reflex with like foot stroking, but it's not totally abnormal. They have Romberg's, but they don't fall over, but their sway is really imbalanced. So those are called soft signs. Mm-hmm. And uh, those soft signs don't really 
indicate a clear disease where a person would see those and immediately jump to imaging studies and do an MRI and try to come up with the disease, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Hard, hard signs would be like um, uh, a positive Babinski test or um, they close their eyes and they fall over, you know, things right. like that. Right. Uh, yeah. different, different degrees of nystagmus that are apparent on visual examination, things like that. But the soft signs are basically neurons that are degenerating. They're neurons that are injured. And the field of neurology is so focused on neurological disease diagnosis, which it's great. We need, we absolutely have to have that. We have to have people identify if there's a space occupying lesion or tumor, but the field of neurology is not really, not really focused. It doesn't emphasize that neurodegenerative changes happen over time and that there's actually interventions that can be applied to maybe slow that down. So all, all a functional neurological examination is, is looking for those soft signs and looking for those areas that aren't working well or areas that are getting worse over time. Mm-hmm. And then figuring out um, what to do, for example, like we talked about with the mitochondria, and then, and then also figure out what to do to activate those areas. And the basic rule of functional neurology rehabilitation to activate those areas of the brain is whatever you can't do or are bad at is what you do. So, for example, someone's really bad at math. And if you're bad at math, that indicates that, you know, the left inferior parietal cortex may not be firing as as well as it could be. So you may have to, like, pick up a math app. Uh Kids are using mathematics (laughs) or something like that. You may be really bad with directions. You really have a hard time with shapes. You may have to do, you know, have to do some activities like a jigsaw puzzle or Tetris or maybe your balance is bad and you close your eyes, you don't fall over completely like a positive arm, but you have significant sway and you have to hold on mm-hmm. to handrails. Yeah. So maybe doing some balance stability exercises could be useful. And those things uh, not only change things like balance and your ability to recall numbers, if it's math or uh, visual imaging and, and the sense of directions, if you get develop those areas, as far as that function, but they're actually changing the entire brain. Mm-hmm. And when, they, when you change the brain, you have far-reaching effects in autonomic function uh, throughout the whole body too. So, uh, it, so it's it's part of the the, the role of the big picture. Yeah. So mm-hmm. for me, I get a little, for me I get a little frustrated because sometimes when I see people practicing functional medicine for the brain, I just see them focus on let's say just mitochondrial nutrients, but not on the mechanisms that cause mitochondrial impairment and the neurodegenerative process. Mm-hmm. And then and then I also get frustrated going well the most impactful thing you can do is to activate mitochondrial biogenesis yeah. by actually doing stimulation and activity there. Yeah. Interesting. Instead of just a bunch of supplements. So, um, you know, those are, I guess, yeah. the long answer for how I look at mitochondrial function and brain. I mean, that's really extensive. I mean, functional evaluation as far as physical exam. And you talked about how glucose and looking for anemia and some of those other you know, conventional laboratory studies are important. Do you use yeah. any functional testing at all? I mean, you have a history yeah. in toxicology. How do you work patients up from functional laboratory testing standpoint? Yeah. So I actually use a lot of, uh, markers, panels from Genova and, Great. uh, I've been, I've been uh, working with Genova for my entire career, even when they were great smokies. Yeah. And, uh, um, the great thing about Genova is they have a great array of testing that you can use for, for various things. Right. But one of the most common tests, for example, I use with, with neurodegenerative patients when I'm trying to find the oxidative stress pattern, which I just can't get from a history, would be like uh, the toxic effects core panel. Mm-hmm. So I use that all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I like the fact that it has different pesticides and different PCBs and different solvents in there. And I can get an idea of the 
total load that they have. And then, you know, we dig down the tree, that tree, are there any biotransformation issues? Are there any exposure? And those are really good. And then I also, you know, focus a lot on just improving gut microbiome health. There's a lot of uh, significant pathways of improving gut function to improve brain function. And uh, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll use the, I use the GIFX uh, Great. comprehensive tool analysis all the time for my practice too yeah. with these neurodegenerative patients and those are i think the first two places i like to start when i'm dealing with people that have oxidative stress to the brain mm-hmm. in addition to trying to get their blood flow and blood sugar back up and then I, I do routine blood work i mean i think that's i think there's two lost arts in the field of functional medicine one the physical examination agree which which is bad yep and and then two is uh just looking at a routine lab work just making sure you can rule out that they don't have basic, you know, microcytic hypochromic anemia mm-hmm. or some of those basic things. Yeah. So yeah. I think I use a, you know, those, those are the two most common tests that I'm using to, to evaluate uh, the first steps of, of brain compromise or mitochondrial deficits or neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah. yeah. That gut brain axis. Yeah. People forget about that. Yeah. And on top of anemia too, I, I wondered like to ask you this question about sleep apnea and, and how much that might play a role in the, the issues around oxygenation to the brain. Yeah, it is a big issue. So we, 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 one of the things we'll do with, uh, with patients is have them um, put a pulse ox on because they can buy pulse ox really inexpensively mm-hmm. from uh, Amazon, right? Right. right. And then just, and have their family members just look at their measurements at nighttime when they're asleep. They can. And mm-hmm. that's a really good clue to see if they're getting hypoxic at nighttime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you can obviously, best, the best thing would be a sleep study to see if those are there. Right. But, right. but uh, yeah there's a lot of people that have chronic brain fatigue and mitochondrial issues of the brain just because they, they have sleep apnea yeah. and some degree of sleep apnea is also brain based because one of the things that you have to have is you have to have a certain tone of your palate muscles when you're actually in REM sleep and that palatine tone that you have, if it's not working well, you can actually suck, suffocate yourself. And that's why people are constantly waking up at night. Hmm. Their palate is suffocating them because they've lost uh, these preganglionic motor tones. So a lot of times when you also can improve brain function, you can see those palate levels change. So when you do any physical examination, you can see like uh, when someone says, ah, and you look at their palate, you mm-hmm. see really sluggish palate and you see uh, just a just a general poor brain function. Um, a lot of times as you improve the brain health and brain function and their palate starts to work more efficiently, yeah. they, their sleep apnea can improve that way. So other times they'll just need to get a CPAP machine. Yeah. And just to start getting oxygen to the brain so they can recover too. So that's um, fascinating. Yeah, uh, that is fascinating. It is. It's a physical exam, Michael. There yeah. it is. Yeah, I mean, physical exam is most important. I, I tell you every day, I focus on improving my physical exam. I'm always reading up on new things. And for me, that's, I work with a lot of neurological patients. So, so uh, I have to get my right. exam finally to know what to check for. That's right. Because I still got to see what things are changing in, in actual physiological function, function with them, which is. It could be you turn their head to the life and they have some end beat nystagmus and they have some you know, anxiety. Mm-hmm. You give a patient that can come into your office and their chief complaints anxiety disorder. And then you do an neurological exam, you go, wow, they're head of the vestibular system. When they turn their head to the left, it overfires. So that car- that creates a sympathetic response for them. Makes sense. And then Makes you sense. go in and do all the things we talked about from a functional medicine approach to the mitochondria, glucose, oxygen, and things that are insulting the mitochondria, uh, whether it's the GI effects panel, looking at just gut inflammation, whether you're looking at intestinal permeability, we're looking for pathogens, whether you're looking for toxic core effects panel to look at chemical pollutants and environmental triggers. 
at some point you got you to change that effect. So when they, for example, in that scenario, if they turn their head to one side, they don't have nystagmus anymore. And then their anxiety goes away. So their chronic anxiety disorder is actually neurological. Wow. Right. Yeah. Right. That's amazing. Well, uh, just sh- shifting gears a little bit um, sure. away from neurology and uh, endocrinology, you've got a book entitled, Why Do I Still Have Thyroid Symptoms When My Lab Tests Are Normal? Um, yes. And this book focuses on how to address thyroid problems from more of an autoimmune approach. So uh, my question is, with regard to Hashimoto's, what are some of the things as clinicians that we should be evaluating aside from just the thyroid labs when we're working that up? Well, for sure, you know, there's a strong relation, at the very least, there's a very strong relationship with gluten sensitivity yeah. and, and Hashimoto's. So that's one, one big thing. So you can say, let's just start with diet. Because at the end of the day, when you're dealing with autoimmunity, you have dietary triggers and you have environmental triggers, you have pathogen triggers, and then you have, let's say, lifestyle triggers, right? Mm-hmm. And then those triggers are all important. And then the other part of it is this concept of improving immune tolerance. So you're trying to improve their immune tolerance, and then you're trying to look for dietary triggers. So dietary triggers, the, the most well-known association with uh, Hashimoto's is, is celiac disease and even just gluten sensitivity. Mm-hmm. So testing for that would be really important. And then, um, you know, a lot of people that have autoimmunity react to lectins and they react to nightshades. And that's where the whole autoimmune paleo diet became popular in the field of Hashimoto's. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other key thing is um, what I was noticing with my own practice was I would have all these patients that have Hashimoto's and they, they, they did a great job before they got, they got to see me. They were already working with other really good functional medicine practitioners. They were educating themselves. They had good diets. They were off gluten and dairy and falling, let's say the autoimmune paleo diet. And they were taking lots of, you know, really good supplements, but they're still not functioning well, which was kind of surprising in a sense they were doing everything right, but they still weren't, weren't improving. And there was, so one of the things that um, I was able to do and do some research with, um, was to, with Dr. Vigitani was we, we looked for all the different foods that can cross react with different thyroid target proteins. Mm. So we found um, just things like, for example, tuna can cross-react with actual T3 and T4. Um, And we did this research study and we published it in the Journal of Thyroid Research, I think about three or four years ago. And one of the things I also do now is if I see a patient that's on an autoimmune paleo diet, I'll just do the food food profile and then determine if they have any reactions to food proteins. And then I'll look at if they are any of those antibody relations on the cross-reactive list that we that we did doing molecular mimicry testing with monoclonal and monoclonal antibodies, mm-hmm. and if they're on the list, then it can remove those too. Hmm. So for Hashimoto's, starting with diet, you know, look at gluten, look at the most common triggers, you'll, which will be more of the nightshades, lectins, wheat, dairy, those types of things. And then if they're still off those and still having reactions, um, you know, you may want to look at cross-reactive reactions. That paper you can get on PubMed if you just type in my name. It's a it's a open access. Uh, we we paid to have it for open access so people can access it without having to pay for a fee to download fee. Okay. But um, uh, that's that's one thing that we do with diet. And then environmental chemicals. Um, again, Toxic Corefex is really good for that. We um, then look at uh, things like uh, tolerance. And that's where I'll use the GIFX panel, for example, just yeah. to get a general idea of their overall health. And then we look at other things that like just stabilizing their blood sugar levels, um, 
that's the basic concept, right? Those yeah. are the basic areas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And when it comes to things like lectins and even gluten to a certain extent, how much does permeability, intestinal permeability play a role in that cross reactivity or, or maybe not as much as we, we might think? It's not as much as you may think it's its own independent reaction. And, uh, we, okay. So right now I'm finishing a data analysis on a study of 400 subjects. We checked, uh, markers for uh, over 20 tissue antibodies and compared those to markers for zonulin mm-hmm. and, and zonulin including different markers for intestinal permeability, finding that you know um, there's a strong degree of association, but not everyone has it. And then we did the same thing with lectins, people that are reacting to lectins and having a lot of immunity, but they're independent mechanisms. So, you know, the, the intestinal permeability mechanism is you have an undigested food protein that right. gets through the gut right. and then you have an immune response to, uh, I guess, an antigen, a neoantigen that shouldn't be there because it's a large polypeptide or amino acid cluster instead of individual amino acid, mm-hmm. that's the barrier, but triggers the immune antibody response. But, um, you know, the key thing with lectins, for example, the mechanism there is agglutination. So yeah, agglutination is when proteins stick together. Right. Mm-hmm. This example of agglutination is rheumatoid factor. So if you ever see, you know, one of the key things is clinical pearl. If you ever see a patient with elevated rheumatoid factor, definitely look for lectin sensitivity. <laughs> yeah, wow. Lectin. Okay. Interesting. So that's, that's independent of the protein going through. So when lectins stick together, so in, for the basic part is immune, well, immune response will happen when there's something new in the body. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or something mm-hmm. that, isn't where it should be. Like with leaky gut, you have undigested proteins that get through the gut and then the uh, immune gut response to it is, is, is inflammatory because it shouldn't be where it, where it is, but it's gonna, it, should be, it should be broken down. Mm-hmm. With, lectin, with lectin issues, the new proteins being developed and the antigens being triggered because these proteins are sticking together. These, these glycoproteins are sticking together. When they stick together, they have a conformational change in their protein structure and the immune system interprets that as a new antigen. A neoantigen. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so lectin reactions are, can happen independently of intestinal permeability. So they're an independent mechanism altogether. Yeah. Right. It's sort of like what happens with advanced glycation end products or mitochondrial fragments, things like that. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yes. They get recognized as being a new, or they're they're unfamiliar to your immune system. So yeah. there's some sort of reaction to it. Exactly. It's just like yeah, glycation is a great example of that same phenomenon. Well. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier being at Harvard Medical, Alessio Fasano and all the work that he does there with celiac disease and gluten sensitivity and zonulin. Are you in the camp of people who just believes everyone should be gluten free or do you like or even lectin free or do you test and only remove in those patients who have positive antibodies? I think when you ask, should everyone be gluten free, should everyone be lectin free? Um, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> Not that simple. <laughs> I think for me, I don't, I don't think everyone should be everything. Uh, you know, that's, that's always, I don't like to be extremist, but uh, I would tend to lean towards the extremist side with chronic diseases because gluten, for example, is just very inflammatory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and, you know, gluten, if you look at some of the studies done in immunology, um, they're finding that there's hybridization of gluten and even potential binding of, of gluten with different pesticides are changing the protein structure. And even in the immunology journals, they're using terms like native wheat and new wheat proteins. Hmm. And the differences of spectroscopy studies where they see some different changes in protein structure with uh, modern wheat. So, um, and we all, we all hear, hear of stories and maybe experience it ourselves where people go to Europe and have different wheat strains right, right. that are 
right? Um, and there's different degrees of reaction. So, you know, there's different types of wheat proteins and wheat proteins change when they're binding to pesticides and chemicals, just like glycation changes proteins and sugars attach to proteins or fats. Um, we know that uh, the, the pesticide um, use in the U.S. where they just spray the fields with pesticides and kill every, every weed for a long period of time and right. then have all the pesticides in the soil, which other countries don't do, that could be a factor. So I think uh, gluten, on, gluten itself uh, is being changed into a different protein, what we call modern wheat. So it's a different, you know, mm-hmm. uh, prote- uh, uh, has different configurations of the proteome of wheat that's been changed. The structure is different. And I think it's more antigenic, meaning it's more inflammatory than before. Mm-hmm. So I think um, for most people that have a chronic inflammatory disease, it's just become a very new inflammatory protein with different practices um, in farming. Yeah. And I think, I think uh, I would be on the side of, yeah, we, we definitely have to rule this out for you mm-hmm. and ruling it out. Sometimes you have people that don't, sometimes you have to have patients see the test to make the decision, right? They have right. to see that. Mm-hmm. And then other times the tests still make them back negative and they get off and they feel better. So, right. so, right. so I'm definitely leaning towards with autoimmune chronic inflammatory diseases to be um, um Mm-hmm. on the side of being gluten-free or definitely screening for it exhaustively, making sure that's not a factor. Mm-hmm. And if it's not a factor yet, it probably will be if they get worse. Right. <laughs> and, um, but there's people that are totally healthy that don't have any reactions to gluten, which is still surprising to me, but there's, you know, the immune system is awesome for some people <laughs> they right. don't have any issues with it. Right. Um, and they have really good anti-inflammatory immune reactions. Uh, they're pretty rare, but they're out there. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and also, I think we all live in our own world as practitioners in healthcare because we're only seeing sick people. You know, right. uh, there's there's plenty. There's people that aren't always sick, and and they're okay with it. And then lectins, I think, are totally independent. I think lectins half or or, or not. Everyone doesn't need to be lectin free. I think that that whole model is just extremist. Yeah. Um, and uh, for me personally, and and we actually again did a study where we looked at several hundred patients and we looked at reactions to. Um, wheat germaglutinin, pea glutenin, um, lectin proteins from uh, that are found in seeds and tomatoes and all those things, and we check these different six different antigens. Um, and with with an autoimmune disease population, there's only a small percentage of them that reacted to it. It was only like 20 percent. Okay. Hmm. Um, and those are confirmed autoimmune diseases. Yeah. So. I think like I think this uh, this agglutination elected is a very powerful inflammatory response with uh, people that have it, but for sure not every autoimmune disease person has it. Mm-hmm. And then this goes back to the point of if you stop diversifying your diet uh, by just constantly cutting out everything, yeah, and you can really change your microbiome and your yeah. microbiome diversity, mm-hmm. and that right. really can perpetuate the autoimmune disease further. So, True. you know. You get these patients that have autoimmune disease and they go, I'm gluten-free, I'm dairy-free, I'm soy-free, I'm egg-free, I'm nitrate-free, I'm lectin-free, I'm autoimmune paleo, I'm histamine-free. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. What are you eating? Yeah, you're diversity-free. <laughs> right. 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 And then you look at their panels and you see, wow, they don't have much uh, diversity there, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that kind of leads me to the next question because you talked earlier about immune tolerance and you've created an online course. Uh, called yes. the 3D Immune Tolerance Program. And yes. as it relates, I, I tend to think of immune tolerance and looking at things like fecal secretory IgA and the GI tract, but you mentioned using stool tests earlier. How do you fit what you're 
learning from the microbiome and the GI tract, and how does that relate to immune tolerance? Right, so for, for my patients that do have autoimmune disease and have lost their tolerance, meaning they have multiple food sensitivities or they have multiple chemical sensitivities or they're attacking their own tissue, have lost self-tolerance, um, you know, I, I definitely, from Genova, I do order the GI effects uh, comprehensive still profile. And there's some really key markers that I look for. And I really like the way you guys organize that panel with all the results on the first page, you know, mm-hmm. so, so clear there. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I really like that uh, dysbiosis score scale that's there to kind of compare mm-hmm. them with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I really like to look at that uh, uh, commensal balance. Yeah. You can yeah. kind of look at healthy pattern and, you know, people that lose tolerance are usually all the way over in the red or yellow and you want to shift them over up mm-hmm. to the left, mm-hmm. to the green. And just overall, you know, with tolerance, you got to have proper digestion so you can, so you can have the proper reflexes and the proper uh, feedback loops all the way from, you know, with the saying we, we use is north to south. They got to break down the proteins, got to break down their fats and so forth. So I want to make sure they don't have any digestion absorption issues. I, I'd like to look at those uh, short chain fatty acid markers, see mm-hmm. what's happening in the gut from there. Mm-hmm. See if there's, you know, any pathogens or things that can get in the way. So I definitely like to um, use the uh, GI panel um, to give me clues of what's happening with their gut environment. And th- th- this is information you just can't get from a history or a physical exam, yeah, right? Right, right? You have to do this kind of testing to see what's there. Yeah. So uh, it's a big part of, of my practice to use, uh, to use the GI panel to really get a good idea of the environment of the gut, to make sure there's not any infections in the gut, see if they're digesting foods properly, mm-hmm. yeah, get an idea of what's happening with their overall microbiome, any yeah. of dysbiosis. And then that test becomes a baseline for me to then do follow-ups and see if those are changing. Um, so those are, you know, that's how I've been using the panel for looking at tolerance. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And it's, you know, can be so tricky because as you were mentioning, there's so many things that we might identify in the diet and want to remove from the standpoint of autoimmune reactivity, but then we want to, we want to make sure we're also including, you know, adequate diversity of foods within the the diet to support the microbiome. So it's such a, it's, it's so tricky. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not easy. And then, uh, we get patients that are scared to add foods in and try things, um, but it's important, but sometimes like, like a person will do a food sensitivity profile and they'll react to let's say 40% or 30% of the foods. Right. right. And it could be like, they react to carrot, they react to apple. <laughs> they react to <laughs> and then, you know, uh, for me, I don't have them completely remove everything from their diet that they react to. I, I, I with patients that are inflammatory autoimmune, I'll for sure want to get, have them off things like, uh, egg protein, albumin, you know, gluten, dairy, you know, soy, the big ones, mm-hmm. or, God, those are the, but like carrot, apples, these other things they react to. I don't have them remove it. I actually then just try to improve their immune tolerance, right. um, you know, with nutraceuticals and some lifestyle factors, and then stay on that same diet they're on. And then see over time, there's, the, they go from 40% of their foods reacting on a food sensitivity profile down to 25% or down to 15%. Right. And if they do, that's how I look at their immune tolerance. So for me, in those cases, immune tolerance, uh, I, I like to look at the combination of their food sensitivity profile, not to see what to remove, but to see how many things they react to. Yeah. And then right. use it as a baseline. And then over time, recheck it to see if those numbers are, that they're getting less reactive to all the dietary proteins you're getting exposed to without the change of getting those foods out of their diet. Mm-hmm. And then uh, looking at the GI effects panel to get an idea of what's happening with the microbiome and their digestion 
and uh, any red flags for infections or things like that. And then kind of work through that process. And that process can take months. It can, it can, it can take a year. Yeah. Right. Right. Different follow-ups and go through things and figure stuff out and start to make those changes. So yeah, that, that's important to remember too. Yeah. And you see a lot of patients that have been suffering from chronic conditions for a long period of time. So you have a pretty thorough and exhaustive workup. Like just out of curiosity, like how long is your, how long does it take you to do your physical exam? So my new patient workup is, uh, I have new patients, uh, new patient days where I only see one new patient. My new patient day is open to the whole day. So I don't have to be rushed. <laughs> so, and most of my patients fly in uh, on new patient days. So I, I, I only have like one chance to really do good work up with them while they're there in a d- detailed history. Mm-hmm. But my, but the, the minimum is four hours. Wow. Right. Wow. And this is after I have all their lab work, all their history. And I've read through, we, we ask, we ask them to send us the digital form while their history questions when ask them anyways, and send that to me beforehand. I get a copy of all their lab work beforehand. We have lots of, uh, you know, just general questionnaire forms to, evaluate different regions of the brain and their metabolism and uh, you know like we look for questionnaire form that looks for symptoms of hypochorhydria and like dysbiosis and blood sugar issues they kind of fill that out right mm-hmm. once i have all that before they even come in i already have a plan yeah yeah and then, and then i basically get, get more information from the history kind of start pinpointing things down but my actual physical exam is is easily two hours wow wow <laughs> yeah, that's a lot that's great it is but, a lot of dark. Yeah. But, I'm, but you have to understand, I'm seeing a lot of neurological cases. Sure. So right. I, I would say uh, um, at least an hour and 20 minutes of that is just a full neuro exam. And okay. I go from the yeah. front of the brain to the back of the brain, top of the brain, all the way down and check out all the peripheral nerves right. and try to figure out what's going on. And I have to do a very detailed exam because I'm doing a functional exam, meaning the soft signs matter for me. Right. <laughs> and uh, it's not like a full bone. It's not obvious like they're not walking in with obvious Parkinson's disease with full-blown tremors and end stage mm-hmm. with earliest patterns of disease and uh, work with a lot of traumatic brain injuries where you, those subtleties make all the difference with them figuring out how to recover them or not because once you pinpoint exactly what area of the nervous system is injured um, you can then figure out how to rehabilitate it and which presynaptic pathways to activate or which blood flow uh, which uh, blood vessels are involved with that region of the brain so you can activate other regions and shunt blood flow there mm-hmm. like you can example see an injury in the parietal lobe but you can't activate the parietal because it's too injured you might activate an area of the motor strip because they they share the same branch of the middle cerebral artery and then i'll get blood flow and help them re- rehabilitate faster mm. so um my exam is is, is is pretty long but it's but a big part of it is because i do such a really thorough neuro exam but mm-hmm. even eyes ears heart lung abdomen i do e, ecg testing in my office i do spirometric testing in my office I do measurements of blood flow and vascular temperature changes. Um, so I try to try to be as thorough as possible. Because I, I know for me, it's, I, I, it's my goal is, as a clinician is try to figure out a strategy and a plan to, to then work on. Yeah. And that, I think that's different than how I used to practice when I was first, in, first out of school. Mm-hmm. When I was first out of school, it was kind of like, well, we'll just keep trying one thing after another until it works. <laughs> right. <laughs> which is kind of inefficient and then (laughs) (laughs) just taking a step back and then trying to prioritize because at the end of the day when you look at chronic patients here's the bottom line they're all gonna they're all gonna have food food reactions they're all gonna have a bad gut they're all gonna have environmental pollutants they're all gonna have so such and such and such right um but where do you start (laughs) and i think the ultimate skill level and experience over time becomes where do you start you know Mm -hmm. Um, because if you take 
and here's the interesting thing with functional medicine too. If you take, I don't know, hundred functional medicine practitioners that are competent. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you give them, let's say they, they go to Genova, they do every t- panel. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they did the entire lineup. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> a lot. Okay. <laughs> so, um, they're going to have things are going to show up with everyone. Right. Yeah. Right. And then you have hundred different people and there's just not going to be one identical treatment for all of them. Right. They're all mm-hmm. going to be different, right. yeah. which is what makes functional medicine so awesome. But it also, uh, but you know, and then, and, and then there's different spectrums of there. You have, so they have one practitioner that will put the patient on a thousand supplements. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, because still everything that's wrong gets a supplement. Right. 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 Which is the most novice and experienced functional medicine practitioner. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> And, then, and someone else may, and then I would say a large percent of them will start with the gut and then try to improve their gut function, which, which makes sense for some people. But I think that's the skill of trying to figure out where to push and pull. And then most importantly, just seeing how the patient responds and then kind of, kind of dictate you and give you the direction where you need to go. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's unique for each patient. And we don't have a, an algorithm that's effective because it is a, it truly is a personalized lifestyle medicine approach. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Talk about personalized medicine there. Wow. Well, Michael touched on a little bit earlier, your online course, the 3D immune tolerance program, but you also have a lot of, a lot of other online educational programs through the Karazian Institute at karazianinstitute.com. What are some other things clinicians can expect when they go there? Sure. Thank you for asking. So the 3D immune tolerance program I made was, uh, I I have a website called Dr. K News which is a website that really, I write articles for people who have read my two books, my, my brain book and my thyroid book. Mm-hmm. And then when I finished my brain book, um, we had a lot of emails and saying, this is great information, but I don't even know where to start. I'm too tired to read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I created an online program called uh, Save, Your, Save Your Brain, which is like a six-week program, but it's not designed for healthcare practitioners. It's designed for the actual patient that mm-hmm. can't find anyone to work with that doesn't know what to do. And they're kind of like teaching the basic steps of how to evaluate their brain and how to stabilize their blood sugar, for example, and how important some things in diet are for the brain and so forth. So that's, that's something. And then we created this 3d immune tolerance. And, and the reason I created this 3d immune tolerance was also for, I work with a lot of uh, Hashimoto's autoimmune patients in my thyroid book. And they're like, what do I do after, after I've been diagnosed with Hashimoto's? And the basic concept was really just try to improve your immune tolerance. And I use the word 3D, which stands for diversify, distinguish, and downregulate, kind of like the 4R program, which then became the 5R program. Right, 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 <laughs> right. exactly. <laughs> and then I, I really wanted to focus on this, this field that's called immune tolerance because I felt the whole functional medicine world was just stuck in leaky gut. Yeah. Right. And intestinal permeability is just one part of immune tolerance. I really wanted to clearly explain to patients that are suffering from autoimmune disease that you know, there's, there's this concept of, of, of diversify, distinguish, downregulate, and and that's when I created the program for patients. But that's for patients. For practitioners, um, I, I created the Crossing Institute last year, and we have uh, we're up to almost 2,000 practitioners worldwide taking courses now, hmm. um, which is way much more than I have ever imagined. <laughs> um, and hopefully, we'll break 2,000 by the end of this year with uh, people signing up, but I create three courses a year. And these are designed for healthcare professionals and it's loaded with uh, the research and uh, clinical information. And I just, uh, in my entire career, I just try to think of how to be as thorough as possible when I work up a certain condition. So we did that for autoimmunity. We did that for the gut. We have done that um, for thyroid Hashimoto's. 
we're getting ready to do one for diabetes. And then what are, what are all the different mechanisms and steps, clinical exam findings, history, uh, and then what's the research show, and how do you apply that all together? Because I think one of the frustrations for practitioners is they don't know where to start. Right. And there's all this research out there, but they don't have a plan of how to work them up. Right. Or maybe they yeah. forgot how to evaluate a diabetic patient for <laughs> things like radiculopathy or neuropathy or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, or just overall lab work, basic analysis of what's there. And then how to go deeper, what we'd be looking at some of these factors like we, that Genova does and some of these other, other profiles, what can be really causing some of these patterns. And then I would show live cases for my, for my practice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Cases I show are not like we, we made a miracle happen. Woo, wah, rah, rah. You know, they're, <laughs> they're cases that are struggling. And then we, we have people follow us in a forum. We, all the people that sign up for the courses follow us up in a forum afterwards. And we'll follow up with our patients and we get to see if they're getting better or not getting better, what things are working, what things aren't. You know, it's not, it's not a showboating thing. It's right. to really show people the process of getting working through a chronic disease patient and trying to, you know, untangle their chronic disease over time. So um, that was the goal of the Cross Institute, just to get people uh, realistic, uh, clinic update, updated uh, clinical models that they can use in their practice right away, and then actually show them real cases, and then have a community to discuss things that we went over in our course, and people share cases on the forum, and uh, it's 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 amazing. So this is our second year where yeah. where we we're about to get into our fifth course. We have three courses a year. That's great. Awesome. And we're going to encourage everyone to go to the Institute.com and yeah. sign up for that. That sounds like a great program no to, as far as be supportive and to, to learn from Dr. Datis himself. That's right. Um, that would, that's just a, uh, a gem. So I do have, I have to say, Denise, I have about a hundred other questions. Like I wanted to get into, you know, sauna therapy, oh intermittent my fasting. I wanted to get into so many different areas. This means you I'm, have to come back, Denise. Well, I'm not going to keep you forever, but we were talking earlier and you happened to mention that you have a little bit of an interesting uh, background as far as a hobby goes. And so this lends itself to what we call the fireball question. The fireball. What is this interesting hobby that you have that is somewhat of a, a martial art? Yeah, so I grew up <laughs> doing Filipino martial arts, which is basically full contact stick and knife fighting. What? <laughs> what? And I mean, that since I was a kid. And stick now, and knife fighting? Almost, so. Yeah, I've been doing it for almost 40 years. And uh, we basically wore armor. Uh-huh. Okay. Grab sticks. And there's actually 12 weapons, 12 different weapons in the Filipino martial arts. Okay. Um, and we go through just basically sparring <laughs> with these weapons wow. yeah and, uh, it's really fun and uh, great to be able to now share this with my daughter and she's getting really confident in, in it as well so it's 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 just it's just a lot of fun and we beat the hell out of each other but we have equipment <laughs> so we don't get too hurt <laughs> i was gonna say you better be careful your daughter's gonna start to kick your butt but, yeah absolutely that would be it. you know she's getting she's getting there and uh, good and uh it really turns on your brain, you know, like yeah. it sticks 100 miles per hour and you have to see what angle is coming in and recovering. So, wow. so I think one of the things that really helped maintain my brain function, uh, yeah. just to do that, that very aggressive, reflexive, uh, responsive type of activity with quick burst. Um, I think that's, that's been really good for my uh, brain health. Yeah. So, so if I want to be as smart as Dr. Karazian, I need to take this up. I think <laughs> me and you. We should totally do this, yeah. Michael. We should. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, Dr. Crosby, this has been a blast and a ridiculous amount of information. And to Michael's point, there are so many other things that we can ask you, so we may have to yeah. have you back. Things like <laughs> words like mTOR and sirtuin Here we go. Here we go. I've, I've got oh, yeah. I'd love to talk about those. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. We're going to put you on the books. <laughs> but we can't thank you enough for coming on the show, Datis. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to have to listen back to this several times. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good rule of thumb for all of our episodes. And. I also think you and I should really take up stick and knife fighting. That is a good way for us to get out our <laughs> mutual aggression towards each other. What? Huh? Next time on The Lab Report, Dr. Dan Kalish. Uh, you might have heard of the Kalish Institute. Everyone has heard of the Kalish Institute. Yeah. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. What do you mean don't do it? I know what you're going to do. Hit you with a stick and a knife? (laughs) YOLO. You only live once. (laughs) 